take a look at this data. Subject 19 is driving me up a wall. We had him slated for all the standard pyrokinesis stuff. The whole medication pack, all the psycho training. He checked out on all the screen tests. We've been three months at this. Two billion credits deep, and it's just not working out. He's a level four psychic, and he can't so much as light a damn match. I just don't get it. I'm out of my, uh, I'm out of my depth here, man. I need a hand. What have you got? It may be time for you to face a more difficult challenge. A more difficult acceptance. Perhaps the premise, the initial premise, that Subject 19 would make a viable pyrokinesis subject was incorrect. <laughs> incorrect? Onadice and Command will have my head for that. Do you realize what it takes, how long to find these subjects, the expense to train them? Not to mention the illegality that we're dipping in here. We are in dark territory. I'm going to need a better option. Sometimes you must accept that there is no other option, that your initial premise was incorrect, and therefore your conclusions and your efforts will not only be incorrect, but misguided. Can you accept this? Move on, and perhaps accept that Subject 19 will be viable for some other project. <laughs> Command doesn't let us just move the subjects around like that. Like, hey, let me just make him a secretary instead. I need, I need something here, man. Come on. Understood. There is a connection in Ishiga City. More computing power than we have here at Onodaisen headquarters. More than here? How's that even frickin' possible? A device. Seldom used. But perhaps we could get a deeper understanding of the cognitive powers of Subject 19, which I'm sure we agree must be harnessed. The computing power I mention is none other than the RPG mainframe. <laughs> Greetings, programs. Your old buddy Ingrid Bernal here. Hank and Fernale coming at you from Northern Rune Hemeria, the great cascades of the Grand Northwest. Yo, back once again. Well, I think we're looking at uh, mainframe episode 54 here. Everybody get your coffee, put on your jammies, because we're going to throw down with another thinky think. All right, this one is kind of gnarly. This is like a, almost like a diary journal entry combined with a mainframe thesis. Now, as you guys know, recently to get the podcast to hold on to its sort of uh, intellectual guts, right? I, I never want the RPG mainframe to become a, hey guys, here's what I'm up to, yada dee, it's another week, hey, hi. I always want it to be about a deep think thesis that has evidence and a clear argumentative structure to it so that not only will I get the chance to be considered in some of these wacky opinions of mine concerning our grand hobby, but that the thinking remains clear, that the contributions do not become repetitive or pulpy. I don't ever want to be the sort of the, the morning serial of RPG podcasts. I really want to try to push theoretical constructs and arguments that make freaking sense. 
and that have thinking behind them. And this latest journey that I took has been probably one of the weirdest ones, the weirdest ones yet. And so if we rewind to RPG Mainframe 53, last episode, I mentioned that I wanted to do a podcast about cities. Okay, so we have Altered State coming up. This is the cyberpunk RPG that is based on index card RPG that me and Alex Alvarez are whipping up. Now, all of you guys are going to be getting a free PDF of the sort of the quick start core here in a few weeks. And that's going to set everyone up to play in the games that I'm going to be hosting, Alex will be hosting, and others throughout December, January, and possibly February. And so that's going to be awesome. You're going to see the the construct that we're going to be offering for a faster, more intense cyberpunk game than I think that is currently out there. I think because of the technological and sort of sociological complexity, these games are difficult to solve in a highly simple way. So pursuant to that goal, I'm sitting down and I'm writing my series of adventures, right, which are titled Birthday Boy. And there's obviously an urban component. And so in mainframe episode 53, I'm sort of talking my way through and I'm like, yeah, oh boy, we're going to do a great podcast on how to run a really cool, dynamic, large scale city. This is going to be part of any super cool cyberpunk game, right? There's always a mega city and it's going to have a sort of dynamic living population of colorful characters. It's going to have riots that are evolving. There's going to be like a cult presence. There's going to be mega corporation presence. Um, there are criminal elements. There are military elements all combining to form this tableau that gives you that feeling of Akira or Ghost in the Shell. For me, quintessential cyberpunk. So I'm sitting down at my journal and I'm looking at these pages that I did right now. And there's a huge title up top that says running a city. And uh, there's this big line of reasoning and what I want to do is first take you guys through the line of reasoning that I did about how a, a construct could be developed or a method or a series of sort of best practices that could give you this sort of almost like a simulation of a big city and how you could make it manageable as a game master, right? Because if your players can feel this, it could be cool. And there's where we're getting into our first premise that we even need a system to run a city right? That we need tools at all. The very first premise is the one that I sort of just clumsied my way right into. Okay, so let's get right into it. So this is a line of reasoning of what could make an effective and sort of prep manageable system for a game master to run a large scale city in a cyberpunk setting. Remember, like this isn't like a village in fantasy, even a castle village in fantasy is tiny in scale compared to something like a mega city or a sprawl. Okay. So that's our first premise is that a living city or a feeling of a, uh, a true and dynamic city space that is tangible is cool for players. It adds to the verisimilitude of the story, right? It feels like things are real and unfolding and alive. Okay. So that's the first premise. This would be cool, <laughs> right? The second premise is that you need choice for players as they're navigating something as big as a city. Now, in fantasy, this is somewhat simple. You provide a, a map of a little area, right? You've got your cool little mountains, your little forest, and you've got your, you know, kind of like in Simbaroom, you get that little map of Davakar. It's a very manageable space, and players probably feel like they can go where they want. There's enough of a sandbox there 
that they get that feeling. Now, whether they ever exploit that feeling or the game master encourages that sandbox feeling, well, that's a different question. But the design of the space sort of gives you that cool feeling, right? This is one of the cool feelings we like in all our RPGs is this feeling of like, well, if we really wanted to, we could kind of go over here. Okay, so that's our second premise. That would be cool. That the sandbox component of a giant city would be cool. Uh, the third one is a bit of a premise, but also a bit of a requirement for a good solution, which is that we also need tactical spaces in our city design. You can't just look at everything from the stratosphere and get a really good combat RPG going. And what I mean by stratosphere is, is quite literal, like high altitude view of a big city, like the map that I did in Vigilante City is cool for role play and for a sense of the overall scene and, and sort of tone. But if you're in an, in an Uzi fight and your slicer in your group is going to leap forward with his katana and attack these cyborgs that are trying to, you know, steal your, your mega chip from you that contains the intelligence of some kind of super being. <laughs> if you're doing that encounter, you don't want to be watching that action unfold from the stratosphere. You want to be at street level. And so whatever we're going to come up with for our sort of solution on this city, it's going to need to have tactical spaces. It can't just be a big old city map. It's just not good enough. Now, you could take the battle world angle where your city map is your tactical map. But honestly, a mega city that was only the size of, say, the Bearcats map would be, I think, highly dissatisfying. Imagine you, you have motorcycles that can do 200 miles an hour through city streets. You would cross the Bearcats battle map in a matter of seconds. <laughs> so the scale here is, is highly challenging. And we're not, we're in tabletop land. We're not really allowed to do something like Grand Theft Auto, where we just make the entire city. It, it, Grand Theft Auto is a case of the entire city being a tactical level map. You can look at every piece of trash and curb throughout that entire city because it's a fully realized 3D space. We, we don't really roll like that in tabletop. We don't have the, the preparation time or a team of 200 people creating all this stuff. And honestly, we don't want to because it leaves no room for our imagination. Okay, so that was part three. We need tactical uh, you know, accommodation here. The next one is that we need verticality, especially in a megacity. In a futuristic setting, verticality is huge, right? You get these massive vertical edifices, so much so that you have almost layers of the city that are completely different. You have the upper layer, which definitely is where the, the uh, elite tend to like to be. And then you have the street level down am amongst the sort of the, the flickering neon or even where power outages are happening and the street's sort of dirty. It's sort of the, the trash heap of the upper levels, right? And these buildings are bigger than what we're seeing uh, currently on earth. They're twice as high or even bigger. And so this verticality is a big part of the fun in cyberpunk. And sometimes you even get like in Blade Runner, you get a flying car to, mixed into this tableau to give you a feeling of that space. I think that's a big part of why the flying cars are in that, um, that setting, because without them, it would be very hard to perceive the verticality of that world, unless you had somebody base jumping or, you know, in some kind of microplane or something. <laughs> but really a microplane is just a flying car, right? <laughs> Okay, then the, other, the, the final one I have is that you need ongoing themes to make a city believable and make it cool and fun for players. And what I mean by ongoing themes is a lot like the fronts in Dungeon World, right? And so you have maybe three to four fundamental forces that are pushing this city forward as a living thing. 
Now, in my sort of perception, one of them is definitely like a doomsday cult. The status and the actions of this doomsday cult are escalating over time. Then you have a criminal element, which you could summarize maybe into um, something like a gang or an organization, almost like a kingpin type, um, you know, model. And and this is also escalating and they're pushing their, their claim on the city, if you will. And this changes over time to make it feel real. Then you have something like a, a paramilitary presence, which is basically trying to stop the rioters and trying to control the city and maybe is being bought out. Um, by high-end corporate ele elements, which could be your fourth one, right? And so these ongoing themes change over time and make this city feel alive. Whew. So already between the scale of this place, the complexity, the, the dynamism of what's happening here, the sociological dynamics, I'm feeling like, good God, how am I going to, what am I doing? But I'm a man of science. I believe in argumentative thinking that is thorough and uh, rational. And so I can't just be like, and back out here. My premises are in front of me. And so now what I need to do is sort of try to move to some kind of thesis, which is going to be our toolkit or our method. And I also have a couple of sort of, I don't know if you'd call them premises, but they're sort of caveats or notes that I have down. And I have two of them, which is... Um, a, a sort of a problem, which is too many details is not re realistic for me to prep a game. And too few details feels sort of flimsy to players. That's something I have to answer to. My solution needs to answer to that. And my solution also needs to answer to scale feeling cumbersome. The scale of a megacity is so intensely incomprehensible <laughs> that somehow my solution needs to be more elegant than that. Think about uh, if any of you out there have ever lived in a very large city, you know that you see, even living there for years, you see like 5% of the city. The, the scale of modern cities, especially the biggest ones in the world, is so incomprehensible that even after years of exploring and meeting people and going places and having fun, you see a tiny little slice of what the really, the full city really is. Unless you're like maybe a police officer or something where you're just constantly, you know, driving around and sort of, um, you know, grid canvassing the city as a, as a career, you're only going to see a small portion of it. So scale can be cumbersome. Okay. So then I go into my, uh, what seemed like a solution. This is sort of seemed like my thesis for all of these challenges is I'm trying to consider how to get my brain around and convey the coolness of my city in my altered state game. In, in this case, the main city is called Shinru. And uh, really, its location is kind of ambiguous as far as the Earth map goes. And I kind of like it that way. I'm not sure if it's in Japan or, you know, like Northern California or or the New York area. or I have actually no idea where Shinru really is. And I kind of like it that way. I like I like that to be flexible. Shinru is a colossal city with, you know, maybe 30 million inhabitants or more. So I come into my thesis and here's the tool set that I proposed to myself, right? I'm thinking through this problem. The first one is establishing anchors. Anchors to me are a concept that really sort of exploits the index card RPG mindset. And an anchor in a city is a, is a relevant location. So if you think about Blade Runner for a second, you have his apartment building, you have the sort of toy master's shop, and you have maybe the, the police station, you know, that big tower, and then you have Tyrell Corp. 
So there's four anchors there in the city. Now there's other scenes in the city, like in the market and uh, the strip club and um, the, uh, the garbage, uh, where the garbage trucks are parked in the beginning of the film. But really you have these four big anchors and the story can kind of bounce around and kind of ping pong around between these anchors. So you're going to need these anchors. That, that one is to me is a no brainer. Now next, you're also going to need tactical spaces. But instead of trying to, you know, draw out all these tactical spaces that represent unique individual places, my solution is to do them by type. So you really only have one tactical map per type of building. So maybe you have a heavy military installation, you have a scientific one, you have a residential, and you have a street. And tactically, you don't get into all kinds of micro details about what intersections may be shaped like and stuff. You could throw some elements into each map like dumpsters or kiosks that introduce different cover layouts, but really you just go by type. So right away, you're gonna have four or five tactical maps that you could either spin or scramble based on different needs as your gameplay unfolds. And finally, or well, no, almost finally, I'm also saying Distance is so bizarre in, a, in a, uh, a scene of this scale. Instead of distance, let's think in time. So I'm not a mile away from the battle as my two friends are fighting a street samurai and I need to get there as quickly as possible. I'm not a mile away. I am D4 rounds away because I'm on my mag bike and I'm like greenlining this baby out. I'm slamming it through the streets. Wah! And it's going to take me three rounds to get to the fight. And each round, I'm going to have to make a dex roll not to crash this bike because I'm pushing it like over 200 miles per hour through the city. So that's the first piece is scale can be so big. Don't worry about measuring distance. Just change it into time, especially if you have things like vehicles scrambling up and making everything crazy. So I'll be there in a minute, guys, rather than I'm moving, you know, 50 feet at a time, inching my way through the city. Then my next one and my final one was as a solution here, which is to get a short list cast. Again, I know I'm a broken record here, but I have to go to Ghost in the Shell and Blade Runner. Think about the cast of characters here. It's sort of uh, under a dozen characters. So you may have 30 million people in the city, but you really only have a few dozen who make your story, who, who construct the sort of the waypoints of what's happening and why you care and what needs to be done. Now, this doesn't count maybe sort of more disposable enemies or opponents, right? Or even if you have like a monster element, which I think is important for any good RPG, like maybe, you know, mutated rats that are below this city, maybe freeform synthetic life forms who have turned vicious, right? They're not quite people, but they're not not people. There's something in between, almost like the creatures in dead space, right? So you could have dozens of those. That doesn't really count. What I mean by cast is, again, think about Rachel, or think about Blade Runner. We have Rachel, we have the Chief, we have Decker, we have Roy, we have Tyrell, we have Pris, right? So we have this sort of core group of maybe even eight characters that move the events and create the vengeance and create the moral impact of everything. Even though there's millions of people in the city, you have a very small cast. So then I'm looking at my solution. I'm looking at my premises and I'm like, you know, these ideas are kind of cool. I feel kind of good about these. I'm like, honestly, why do I want to simulate a whole city? So now's where, here's the moment where I'm leaning back from my work and I go to my next page in my journal and I'm like, all right, let's keep thinking here. And I start drawing these circles 
and little lines connecting circles for absolutely no reason. I'm just thinking and distracting my brain. And this is where the idea struck me for the intro to episode 54 here on the, uh, the mainframe, which is, you know, this brief portrayal of a character who's invested billions of dollars in this, in this idea and has to face that maybe it's just not going to work out. This is what I just went through, you guys. I don't think I want to simulate a city. <laughs> I don't think I want to do it. I, even if my solutions and my tools are really cool, I don't think this is something I'm interested in doing. So I take a look at Birthday Boy, the game that I'm building to run about, you know, what, 25 of you or so, maybe 21 of you, through a series of games that intertwine coming at the end of the year here. The Birthday Boy. And I have a good sense of what this game is all about and how the story arcs a little bit, of course, with lots of room for players to foobar it all up. But to execute this story that I want, I don't need a simulated city. <laughs> Maybe using time instead of distance is a handy trick. Maybe controlling the list of my, my cast, keeping it short, is a handy trick. Maybe reusing tactical spaces might be a handy trick. But you know what? The life and times of the city as a whole organism are not salient to the adventures that I'm creating. It does not freaking matter. <laughs> and you know why? Because I am building... This whole cyberpunk concept, both the work that I'm doing with Alex on the RPG side, the novel that I'm writing, and the adventures that I'm creating, none of them are perceived from the top down. They're all built from the bottom up, from a, a very specific and small look at this world and going upward. And honestly, this was my opening thesis for how to kick ass at cyberpunk, was not to start in the stratosphere, but to start at the at the the dirt on fingers level and i think of all cyberpunk that's out there nothing does this better than blade runner and even the the new blade runner movie executes this brilliantly when it comes down to the protein farmer in the beginning of the film this is such a intimate encounter between two human beings in this vast landscape of information it all comes down to this interface between two human beings out in a sort of a lonely place. To me, that is the beauty and the counterpoint that I want to bring in my cyberpunk work. So why the hell am I sitting here trying to figure out how to simulate an entire city to offer dynamic updates to players about the living status of this colossal entity? So I'm like, damn, did I just sit here and think about this for three nights for nothing? <laughs> Crap. So I thought, well, maybe I could compress all this data into the idea of an update. There's a city update. And then I started thinking about like a news flash. Maybe at the beginning of each session, you get a sort of a, a feeling of like the television news just giving you micro blurbits, blipverts to use a Max Hedrum term, about the status of the city, events unfolding in the city. And this I start liking a lot. Simulating a city is not a business I want to be in. And even simulating a living, growing city that is like sandboxable like players, honestly, it's just not something I want to spend time on. But I suddenly have a tool that I really, really like. And so even though almost all my premises kind of fell apart on me, and I'm not even a big fan of my theses, I'm kind of just like, yeah, these are okay, but honestly, I don't want to do a lot of this stuff. I just had to face it. But then just by coming around 
going, hmm, maybe there's something vastly simpler. And it gave me this. It gave me the news flash. The news flash is something that you need to slap down that's going to be sort of uh, spoken at the beginning of each session. And, and now I'm happy. And you know, if you think about this, you, you often see this in these kinds of films and stories. It's like someone's drinking a whiskey, right? In this kind of weird future bar. And there's a television or there's like a viz box or a holographic projection in the background that's showing like footage of the rioters, you know, down in the, you know, in the, the sort of the red light district, the rioters have, you know, things have gotten worse and you just kind of see this, this small suggestion of things. And this world is so big that even the characters themselves know little more about things than that newsflash. Again, coming back to the real life experience of living in a huge city, really the little blipverts that are on the news are how you become informed about the larger situation. You're not out there experiencing it or getting like this detailed rundown of everything happening in the city. That's not, that isn't salient at all or realistic. So suddenly I have this tool, the newsflash. The newsflash is the player-facing version of the whole truth, session by session. And you only need one per session. And it can be jam-packed with clues about the session, or it can be complete fluff to just make the setting feel real. But you only need two or three lines per session. So instead of this whole idea of spatially, temporally, sociologically, vertically simulating an entire city, you have boiled the whole thing down to three lines of text that come at the beginning of a session. That is it. Now, this I like. You guys know me. I really like to boil a whole bag of rice down to one little cup of tasty nuggets, <laughs> right? My chimkin nuggers. I don't want a whole bag of chimkin. I want one nugger. And I think I've got it here. The news flash. I'm a huge fan of this idea. And I, I also like that it's kind of in this like this bland kind of voice. Like, you know, this morning in the, uh, the red light district of Shinru City, the rioters who are part of a doomsday cult called Akira have escalated their efforts, killing more than 14 police officers and destroying two apartment buildings. That's almost it. <laughs> right i like how that feels it's over quickly and we get back into the action which we're going to execute like we would any fantasy game any normal game where you're kind of running through some sort of maybe three rooms in a session but you are moving right past all the city stuff traveling across it you know you're 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 just montaging your way through all this stuff and getting right to the tactical parts even if they include a lot of role play or a lot of social play, right? That's still, of course, going to be part of this. But we're not tracking you driving from block to block. We're not rolling to see if there's, you know, nails in the road, <laughs> so to speak. And so I've come to a place that I feel happy with the newsflash. Okay, yay. But then this is where the real guts, I think, of episode 54 of the RPG mainframe are revealed. And this is a another sort of topic or another revelation that I'm seeing in my work right now, which is making creative discoveries. I knew that getting into cyberpunk was going to be difficult. If I wanted it to have the compelling and fun and replayable, luscious depth that fantasy has. And really, if you look at the history of our hobby, cyberpunk has a hard time holding on to audience interest like fantasy does. It just does. 
it, it does, you know, pop up in a flare every once in a while of interest, like, ooh, this is going to be cool. But you don't hear a lot about three-year-long cyberpunk campaigns. But you hear about three-year-long fantasy campaigns all the time, right? And so I'm still trying to answer that fundamental challenge. And to me, here a moment happens that applies to everything we do, whether it's crafting popsicle stick terrain or painting miniatures, drawing maps, coming up with your next story twist, or even just creating a character. It's the feeling and methodology and also muscle work of making creative discoveries. Now there's, to me, really a very different kind of work when you're making creative discoveries as opposed to doing creative output. Like a lot of the times when we're being creative, it's because we're going to reveal this creativity to an audience, right? We've got our thing, we made our thing, it's creative, it's interesting and innovative, and we're gonna show it to whatever that audience may be, whether it's two people or 2,000 people. And, ooh, great, I did it. I am creative, this feels great. Okay, that's one type. Then way over here, far less talked about, but to me, in some ways more important and more challenging, is this discovery making when you're being creative. And this is where you don't know what the outcome's going to be. And often, it's not what you thought it was going to be. And facing that, and wadding up your piece of paper, right, and tossing it in the garbage, but then learning and going again and getting closer to something, you don't even know what, that's creative discovery making. And so I've added one more tool to my creative toolbox and it isn't just the realization that, ooh, man, I, you know, it's like when you, you get a really gnarly workout in the gym and the next day you get that wonderful mechanical feeling of soreness. You're going to get the same thing with a creative discovery. You're going to go, man, that was like really unpleasant when it was happening. But now I'm kind of in this afterglow and I'm feeling like I grew a little bit. Yeah. You're going to feel that when you make honest creative discoveries with yourself. And so the tool that I've added to my, my box is disposable work. It's when you walk into a challenge or a project or a design or whatever, and you know that what you're going to do for the next 20 minutes or the next two days is all disposable. None of it's going to face whatever the audience is that you're being creative for. It's all going right in the garbage. And it's just like my old saying, if you want to learn karate, you got to punch the air. And that's what you're going to be doing here with disposable work. You're just going to punch the air for a while. You're not going to, you're, you're not accomplishing anything except developing those muscles with which help you to express yourself and evaluate your self-expression and then do it again express yourself and evaluate that expression again and again and again and those repetitions develop those muscles and so the the actual physical tool that i added to my arsenal was this hilarious old machine called a uh, a wordmaster neo 2 i think it's what it's called the neo 2 this thing is is pure comedy it's an actual word processor from the 90s. You just type it in and there's an LCD screen. You can't even barely read or, or edit the output. It's just like you're writing it, you're going to upload it to a machine and then just toss it. <laughs> but you can type extremely fast. It has no distractions. It can't run any apps. And so you get a disposable work tool. It's a tool that's actually designed 
for you to really not even hold on to what you're writing. So you're just typing and typing and typing because typing lets your mind crystallize what you're trying to think about. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but if all you do is think about your problem, you tend to go in circles in your mind. But if you talk to your creative confidant or you type it out or write it down in your journal and then just draw a big X on the whole thing because you're like, this didn't pan out, it gets it out. It sort of releases it. And this is what I am calling disposable creative work. And especially in the workshop of discovery, it is an absolutely crucial tool that I keep discovering and rediscovering. And recently, these past three days, I got smacked upside the head with it and I'm feeling great. So that's what I'm going to keep on working with to develop Birthday Boy for um, the immortals who are going to be playing at the end of this year. So really exciting for episode 54 here, the RPG mainframe to share with you guys this sort of journey that I just went through because often making the podcast, it's, it sort of predicates like that. I know what I'm talking about or something like, Hey guys, I have a great idea for you this week. Well, not this time <laughs> I thought I did, but then the more I looked at it, I was just like, I no, no, I'm scribbling this out. And to me, that in itself is a good idea. All right, you guys, thank you so much for tuning into the RPG Mainframe once again. Thanks, everybody, for your ongoing support of Runehammer here on Patreon. And welcome all the new patrons. We're always getting people coming in the door. We're pushing up toward that 700 patron number, which is so exciting to me. Um, and just look forward for lots more um, as I continue to sort of struggle through for me what is a real stretching creative exercise, which is getting ready to run some really tasty cyberpunk games that are just as fun and robust as fantasy games. That's where I'm at right now. That's the state of my business. Keep an eye out on all them social media platforms because you know I'm going to bring that heat. All right, you guys, this is old Ingrid Bernal. I'm going to get out of here. I got a lot to do. I got things to draw. I got things to write, and I got some disposable creative work to do. <laughs> so it's not going to write itself, and it certainly ain't going to throw itself away. All right. I'll see you guys on the internet. This is Old Ingrid signing off. Bye.